0: Gotta love scientists and engineers that think of all of these things to to plan and to put in a uh, a process sheet, because if it was up to me, it would be like, well, you know, I probably should have done this instead of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily you're not one of those guys, Mark. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> three,
1: two, three, all all Right and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1508. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Hello. A man of many words, I see.
2: <laughs> As usual.
1: And the other voice you just heard there is uh, also joining us, Larry Herron. Welcome, Larry.
2: How are you doing, Sawyer? Glad to be here, as usual.
1: I'm glad to be here as well. Uh, unfortunately, it's just going to be the three of us tonight. Uh, Jean is unable to make this recording, and Kat uh, is not feeling well at the moment, so we hope that she feels better and will hopefully be back very soon. All right, let's get into things here with our news roundup. And uh, we will start with the big giant stainless steel elephant in the room, and that is Starship. Uh, you may recall there have been uh, quite a few lawsuits involving SpaceX, especially after recent flights. Uh, Larry, what's the latest that's going on with that?
2: Well, uh, Sawyer, we we told you that we'd keep you up to speed with all that's going on in the environmental group's lawsuit against SpaceX and the FAA. Uh, regarding that Starship's initial test launch last April 20th that caused such a mess around the Boca Chica launch facility. So the latest in that lawsuit, uh, as it slowly drags along, on June 30th, there was a filing by the defendants, meaning SpaceX and FAA, that they uh, made where they generally denied all the allegations in the plaintiff's complaint. Uh, and their defenses for that was that the plaintiffs lacked standing to assert the claims alleged in the complaint. Also, that the plaintiffs failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Also, that plaintiffs have failed to exhaust their administrative remedies for some or all of their claims. Uh, and probably there was one or two other things in there, too. But that's uh, basically stuff that always kind of gets thrown in at this point in these legal proceedings. And uh, the other thing that got thrown in there was that for those foregoing reasons, the defendant's request that the court dismiss the complaint in its entirety, render judgment for the defendants and against the plaintiffs and grant defendants such other and further relief that the nature of the case and justice requires. So, again, those are all uh, typically uh, moved for uh, defenses and, and, and what's called a prayer in other words, uh, what they, what they want, to, what they pray that the court will do. Uh, and none of that has been ruled on yet. Uh, but on July 5th, the judge in the case ordered that the parties confer and jointly file a proposed briefing schedule by August 14th, 2023. So you can see that this is, uh, starting to drag out for a while. And, uh, it looks like it may be that. Eric Resch's uh, predictions and uh, on our show a couple of episodes ago maybe uh, coming to pass as far as the uh, the case dragging on into the, the fall. So we'll continue to keep an eye on things but that's where it stands now. None of these motions that I've just talked about have been ruled on by the judge yet and uh it looks like they may not get back uh, into court for a while. So I've, I've looked at the docket and through the end of August, I see nothing on there for, for this lawsuit yet, but that could change. That could change tomorrow and we'll try to keep you updated as best we can.
1: I think what's really interesting about this is I wonder if this is going to have any impact on their second integrated flight test, which they're aiming for end of august but if i had to put money on it would probably be closer to october november range but let's say let's go with elon time here and say that we are talking august given that the ruling is uh, you know the deadline for that proposed briefing is mid august i wonder if that will have any impact on the launch itself I don't think it will unless the judge makes a ruling in the plaintiff's favor, in which case I think that's going to throw a whole monkey wrench into all future plans for Starship testing, at least for the next six months to a year.
2: Yeah. Well, it could be even worse than that or, or not. It could be that it could be that next week uh, there is, you know, some kind of, some kind of surprise from the judge. Maybe the judge will dismiss the complaint in its entirety. It's very doubtful, I think, at least at this point, the, before the, all the facts and the, the evidence and the arguments have been heard yet. So it, to me, it seems like it, at this point, it's more, way more likely to go into September than not. And, you know, as far as as far as I understand, the Starship ain't going anywhere until this case is resolved one way or the other.
1: I know that's going to upset a lot of people, and I'm sure there will be some tweets from a uh, certain Twitter owner who may have some ties to SpaceX in regards to if this drags out. Yeah.
2: Yep, well, we'll, we'll keep on top of it, and we'll let you know what we find
1: out. Exactly. Now let's switch over to the NASA side of things here, away from SpaceX for a moment. And NASA, we've heard this for a while now about them trying out different spacesuit designs, showing off different uh, prototypes and everything. But now NASA has basically made their selection of who they want to build their next spacewalk suits. Larry?
2: Yeah, Sawyer. So on this one, the uh, two contractors, Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace, who have been building uh, spacesuits that were suitable for one of two purposes, each company. Either suitable for spacewalking in low Earth orbit or more suited for moonwalking, like uh, for the Artemis missions. Uh, and so now with this next phase of awards, these task orders, um, each of those companies, Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace, each get a $5 million task order that's intended uh, for Axiom Space to begin work on a space suit for use in low Earth orbit and for Collins Aerospace to begin work on a space suit for use on the lunar surface. Each contract provider has proposed a plan to continue developing their spacesuit to perform in an environment different from that that they originally started with. So Axiom Space was previously awarded the task order to develop a spacewalking system for partial gravity on the lunar surface, like during Artemis 3. And so they're now going to, Begin assessments for extending that suit for use outside the International Space Station. So spacewalking. So it's a different microgravity environment, uh, different, uh, different hazards to deal with, uh, than, than they previously had in their others in their current version of their suit. Collins Aerospace was previously awarded an initial task order to develop the spacewalking system for microgravity outside the space station. So now they're going to take that same suit and try to make modifications to it as needed to extend that suit for use on the lunar surface and the whole idea behind this is that nasa gets redundancy they get uh, the benefit of any innovations that each company uh, comes up with for how they handle those uh, those requirements so they'll also have uh, so they'll have two vendors to choose from and the suits should at some point if nasa follows through with subsequent task orders, They both of those suits should be able to perform in both environments, both in low Earth orbit or lunar orbit, as well as on the lunar surface. So a lot of redundancy, a lot of uh, innovation that they're trying to spur here, and that's always a good idea. You know, you always want to have options when, in case you hit a, hit a snag with one vendor, you've got the other vendor that hopefully uh, can come through and provide for you when you need it.
1: We've never seen the need for anything like that at all, say, with uh, Crew Dragon and Starliner.
2: (laughs) Right, right. So, you know, it's just uh, all this unnecessary stuff that NASA's doing. Just kidding. (laughs) It's it's a really, really smart idea.
1: It's very, yeah, because we've had the same sort of spacesuit for, you know, spacewalking like the ISS and shuttle for a while, and obviously it's proven and it works. But the last time that we've had an EVA suit that was meant for lunar activity that was actually used on the moon was 1972, and those were designed well before that. So with all of the upgrades in technology, you know, to be able to make something lighter, more sturdy, and probably most important, be able to actually perform certain tasks like bending down or picking things up or grabbing rocks. As dumb as it seems, we hadn't done that before 1969. And then we kind of made small improvements by 72. But now we've had so many years to improve that I'm excited to see what each company comes up with.
2: Oh, yeah. There have been so many advances in materials science and, uh, you know, every other aspect of, you know, environmental controls, all that kind of stuff and if you look at the some of the old footage of the old uh, moonwalks uh some of the contortions that these guys had to go through to like pick up something off the ground you know picking up something off the ground was kind of a a little little jump in the air a little tilt forward a little uh you know grab it as your as your hand hit the ground and then like try to bounce yourself back up again onto your feet it was it was a Sort of comedic watching this stuff. So, hopefully, we'll have a little bit more flexibility and a little bit less bulk, it's just a whole lot more comfortable spacesuits to to work in, no matter where they're working.
0: Yeah, I'd like to mention something I remember from talking to uh, shuttle astronauts that did um, work outside the station, outside the shuttle. There were times at the end of their spacewalks that, due to the uh, amount of uh, the requirements of using their hands for everything that they actually had uh, their fingertips bleeding from the nail bed becoming detached from their fingertips due to the constant gripping and torque that they put on their fingers inside the gloves mm. um, also you know it, it's a complex thing and it's it's Well nigh time for some improvements and I'm sure we'll get them, but something to keep in mind. Um, this isn't cheap and we're turning this into a longer segment than just a little news story, but these are spacecraft. When you put a human inside a suit and you expect them to have the capability for life support, temperature control, uh, micrometeoroid, uh, protection and a host of other things that I'm not even thinking of on the on the spur of the moment here you've got a spacecraft and um you know we focus on the capsule the the vehicle the astronauts will fly to the moon in we focus on the lander um, at some point there's going to be rovers and other types of vehicles but the core of it all is the spacecraft the spacesuit that's keeping the astronauts safe healthy comfortable and able to do the jobs that they'll be called on and the jobs that they don't even necessarily know that they'll be called on to do and work.
2: Excellent points. I I love the part about the the suit being really a spacecraft. It's exactly what it is.
1: Yeah, that's the perfect description for it. Now, while we're talking about the Artemis program and uh, all of the moonwalking and things like that, Mark, there's a, uh, another program or another instrument that's being used right now in anticipation of these landings, right?
0: Correct. This was some information just came out a few days ago as we record, and it's about some new Artemis instruments that'll be used to study volcanic terrain on the moon. Now, that makes more sense to me than the acronyms that are part of this, but let's just have some fun with the acronyms nonetheless. This is called a Dimple D I M P L E instrument suite, and that's short for Dating an Irregular Mare Patch with a Lunar Explorer. This is going to investigate the INA Ina Irregular Mare Patch discovered in 1971 by Apollo 15 orbit, orbital images. Learning about this mound will address some outstanding questions about the evolution of the Moon providing clues to the history of the entire solar system. DIMPLE is the result of the third annual proposal call for PRISM, another acronym, which is Payloads and Research Investigations on the Surface of the Moon. Third annual proposal call for PRISM, which sends Science investigations to the moon through a NASA initiative called CLPS. Oh, look, another acronym, Commercial Lunar Payload Services. That one actually makes sense. The PRISM call was the first that allowed proposers to choose and study a particular landing site for conducting high priority lunar science investigations. So uh, just a, a short add on from my opinions and thoughts. It's good to hear these things moving forward. It's a shame they weren't something that was put in work 10, 15 years ago because maybe we would be knocking on the door of the moon instead of, in my thoughts, possibly another decade out. Over on my part. Yeah.
1: Got to love the acronyms and uh, got to love all this excitement and all the work in anticipation of Artemis three.
2: For sure. We'll be right back. You know, we do a lot of talking here on Talking Space about a wide variety of space-related stuff. But there's a lot more to talk about and report on in the universe of space. So much more. Is there something you'd like us to pay more attention to than we do? Or perhaps pay not so much attention to? But if your answer is, yeah, about a little less SpaceX, then I wouldn't hold your breath with this crew. The point is, we'd like to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Send us an email to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can also attach a short audio file with your comment or question, and we'll play it on the show if we can. Come on, don't be shy. Hey, I think I sound stupid, and I'm doing it. And if I can, you can. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks. And now, back to the show.
1: Alright, so now we're gonna go a little bit further away from the moon and, uh, check in with OSIRIS-REx, which you may recall has the, uh, sample of an asteroid currently nested inside its return pod still attached to the mothership, but that's not gonna be for much longer, right Larry?
2: Right, so the, the spacecraft, uh, left Bennu on May 10th, 2021. And uh, made a course correction back in, I think it was September of 2022. And this month, July 2023, OSIRIS-REx will make a series of course correction burns that will be very important to making sure that the spacecraft comes close enough to Earth within 155 miles of the surface uh, so that that would be close enough to release its sample capsule, uh, which will then aim for a precise landing via parachute at the Air Force's Utah Test and Training Range in the Great Salt Lake Desert. Uh, and I, you know, if the capsule is too high, it will skip off the atmosphere. Uh, if the, if it's angled too low, it will burn up in the atmosphere. So this is, you know, like, like every return through Earth's atmosphere, this is a, a precisely aimed object that needs to be just that precisely aimed in order to get back here successfully after all that time and trouble and money. And uh, so the project managers on that mission will be very busy this month. I uh, just wanted to kind of give a little shout out to them and wish them good luck on these final uh, trajectory adjustments to bring that baby home. Uh, we should see it, if it's successful, we should see it return on September 24th of this year, completing its seven-year mission.
1: That's crazy to me. I remember being at the launch, you know, being at the pad gate seeing the uh spacecraft encapsulated up in the fairing and watching it lift off with that weird uh slide maneuver on the 411 version of the Atlas 5. And then I remember when they actually did the sample collection and, and now it's already coming in for landing very soon. And what still blows my mind is how precisely they've been targeting it with an exact date and basically an exact location of in this area of the desert is exactly where it's going to land. And it blows my mind because it was like when it launched, it was, wow, this is so far away. Then when it got the sample, it's like, oh, wow, now it still has to return. And here we are.
2: Yeah. The reporters that are interested in this whole thing, they're already being invited to uh, some rehearsals for the, the sample return mission, you know, to watch these guys go through drills of exactly how they will approach the uh, sample package and how they will pick it up to transport it back to the lab and get it inside of containment and uh, you know, they'll be the only way that they will interact with it is inside, a, you know, containment facility, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole protocol that that's going to be gone through that's being rehearsed now, so that they can pull it off successfully, and you know, sort of with their eyes closed on the day of. So, also some really interesting stuff to watch.
0: You got to love scientists and engineers that think of all of these things to to plan. And to put in a, a, a process sheet, because if it was up to me, it would be like, well, you know, I probably should have done this instead of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, you're not one of those guys, Mark. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Saw- Sawyer, I got a question for you. You mentioned something about the launch and a yes. maneuver. Explain that. I, I know what a 411 is, but I've never really been aware of anything different about it other than just ignition zoom up it goes.
1: Well the for those who don't know, the four is the size of the fairing, so it's four meter diameter. Uh, the last nu- the number at the end, the number one, is the number of upper stage centaur engines, which for Atlas has pretty much always been one with the exception of Starliner. Now, the number in the middle is the interesting one. That's the number of solid rocket motors around the rocket. It's typically up to five. So if you think about the number, the number is one, which is asymmetric thrust. So the rocket's going to want to go to one side. So it kind of was the predecessor to Starship's first flight in that as it went up, it was also going sideways. And you can see in the smoke plume, if you watch it, that the smoke plume has a curve to it as the rockets going up. Since again, it's trying to counteract the fact that the solid rocket booster on one side is trying to push it one way.
2: Very cool.
0: Never knew that. Interesting. I never thought about it, and I know they can put any number of from one to five, I believe, of, uh, solids on there. But I never thought about thrust asymmetry and how they have to maneuver to maintain a, uh, ascent profile. Cool.
1: Yeah. Cause again, if you think about it, you can put two of them symmetrical, three, you've got triangle shape, four symmetrical, five, you can do it in a pentagon type shape one it's you know (laughs) stick it in the direction that it kind of needs to go and you know pray but (laughs) it's very unique to see it's a very rare configuration and obviously with atlas retiring something we won't see again but it was just see it slide off the pad as it's going up and that be totally normal was strange but cool
2: Yeah, when I saw that during Starship, I remember Gene was asking me, so what did you see? And I said, well, it looked like it was going kind of sideways, and I didn't think anything about it at the time. But, yeah, I mean, that was probably because of the little asymmetric thrust because some of the engines were out on the Starship, right?
1: Yeah, theirs was unplanned. Yeah, Osiris-Rex was planned. (laughs) Right. All right. While we're talking about uh, Atlas V, which is a ULA rocket that launches from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, let's stick with the other rocket that is scheduled to launch from that exact same pad very soon. And that is the inaugural flight of ULA's Vulcan rocket. Uh, that rocket will have a first stage powered by two BE-4 engines built by Blue Origin. And have an upgraded Centaur upper stage. Which, if you don't know, the old version or the one that's on Atlas is Centaur 3. This one will be Centaur 5. What happened to Centaur 4? Don't ask me. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> continuing with that, though. uh We've had two problems recently with both the BE-4 and the Centaur upper stage. Well, let's start from the top and work our way down. So... Centaur 5, uh, it was undergoing a final test and, uh, it turns out it kind of blew up in spectacular fashion. Uh, it was an over pressure event, as Tori Bruno officially called it. Basically, while they were re- loading propellant, uh, and pressurizing the tank at the Marshall Space Flight Center back in March, uh, the hydrogen kind of started leaking near the top dome area of the Centaur. Enough of it gathered, and there was an ignition source that was found that caused things to burn, which created the overpressure event and damaged not only the Centaur dome area, but also the test stand. Turns out, the uh, area where everything occurred was right near a door. And as uh, Tori Bruno put it, has quote-unquote unique geometry. So they're going to have to add more stainless steel to that area to kind of fortify it, which, yes, is also going to add more mass, 300 pounds worth, to be exact. So they're going to have to do a little switcheroo. So the Centaur upper stage that was already on top of Vulcan at the Cape, ready to launch on the first flight, has now been shipped back to be retrofitted. The one that was supposed to fly on the second mission is now going to become a test article to make sure that this fix actually works. And then the one that was supposed to fly on the third flight, a.k.a. the first fully operational flight, that one is now going to be the article on this first test flight. I should say, even though it's called a test flight, it will still have a payload of the Peregrine Lunar Lander, which is a private lunar lander. So... That one, they will already work on adding that extra stainless steel, close it up, and send that one off to the Cape instead. So there's one delay. Next, there was a uh, recent event with the BE-4 engine, which we talked about recently. They successfully did the test fire on the flight readiness firing of it. So those engines are okay. However, during the 15th acceptance test procedure, as they call it, while the engine was being tested... It experienced a burn through, which led to another earth shattering kaboom. Basically, it uh, started to exceed the red line limit, or the point where if a certain value goes over that number, the engine automatically shuts down. Uh, yeah, it got to that point and was starting to shut down when it exploded. So, needless to say, uh, they have now changed that red line number and will continue to test that. That, in theory, is something can be fixed more on the software side, so shouldn't impact the engines itself. So despite all of these problems, in a recent update, Tori Bruno says that they are still targeting either end of Q3 or early Q4 for that first inaugural flight of Vulcan. Which seems a little crazy after everything that's going on there, but, I I mean, they seem to have figured out the cause of everything it's just a matter i guess of implementing the fixes and making sure they work and get your hardware down to the cape
2: so sorry did i understand that right that the uh, that the next flight of this assembled rocket will be carrying a test object that is the lunar lander basically
1: yeah its first payload is not a dummy payload it is an actual mm-hmm. company that is trusting them to place the peregrine lander on top of Vulcan, mm-hmm. which will hopefully, if everything goes successful, land on the moon and be one of the first private lunar landing missions.
2: But this test flight will not happen until after they've gone through some additional testing on both of those engines after modifications.
1: In particular, the Centaur upper stage, yeah, because they will okay. make the modification on Article Number 2, which, again, was supposed to be be an actual flight article and see if that works and if it does then great the one that was supposed to fly on flight number three will be shipped off to the cape with the fix and fly on this flight
2: so what do you think about the schedule that they're predicting to have these things tested and certified
1: i think ambitious uh, I respect ULA and what they do and they're great, but again, if you compare it to something like SpaceX, which has the rapid iteration, ULA is the exact opposite. They are the take it slow and steady. So, knowing them, it's going to take a little longer. They do have other test stands, so even though they destroyed a test stand that's not going to stop them from being able to do the test, it just, um, I think going to take longer than they expect, especially then having to apply the fix to other articles, ship it all the way back to the cave, reintegrate it at 41, test everything there again. And then you're also partly dependent now with this test flight on your first payload. The Paragon Lunar Lander, its goal is to get to the moon when its landing site is in daylight. So that kind of limits your launch window as well. What that is, Tori Bruno said you would have to ask the company that's actually building the lander, uh, so he didn't have an answer for that. So there's a lot of factors in there.
2: Yeah.
1: I would say early 2024 would be a safer bet because I should point out their, fir- their current plan would be that first flight by, uh, either end of Q3 or early Q4. Then to have their first, you know, fully fledged flight by January and basically in Q1 of 2024, have the vehicle tested and proven with enough flights so they could start flying their contracts with space force and DoD
2: yeah interesting because uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at your article here and uh, one of the last things you say about uh, what Bruno said is that we're very confident in the design and the workmanship. Uh, this is not unexpected. And they said it won't be the last. <laughs> there will be other components <laughs> on the rocket that also fail acceptance testing. <laughs> so that's yeah, an interesting I mean, <laughs> interesting thing to say in the middle of all that, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. What I also found interesting was he pointed out the fact that, oh, yeah, every single engine that's flying on a ULA vehicle right now has had some form of malfunction during the proof testing They've had burn throughs they've had explosions, overpressures, things like that with other engines. So even though you know ULA has a 100 percent success rate as of this recording, it's worth noting that on the ground it isn't a hundred percent and that's okay because right. again it's testing
0: yep well, I'd rather have that yeah, stuff happen on the ground than in the air, right? It's when you hit t0 that it all counts yep.
1: Exactly. Like, I would say T plus one second because you can still abort right before T-Zero as Mark and I have seen in person. Yeah, yeah. It, on,
0: a, on another note, though, uh, looking at a picture of the first stage of the Vulcan, isn't that a pretty rocket?
1: Oh, I yes. wish more people painted their rockets like that. I remember when they originally planned to have the swooshes on the side of the solid rocket boosters for SLS. <laughs> but then again, at the same time, once it's fueled... You don't see it anymore cuz the frost build up. <laughs> but it's it's the thought that counts. Yes, I appreciate the aesthetics very much. Now Finally, one of my favorite topics on this whole show is when we get to talk about STEM or STEAM topics, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And uh, Mark, we've got some great STEM stuff. What do we got?
0: Oh, boy, howdy. So uh, this is about a month ago, but NASA announced the recipients of their annual STEM grants providing nearly $4 million in total funding to support some scientific, technical research That aligns with the agency's strategic priorities. Um, They're going to places like uh, Brown University in Rhode Island, College of Charleston in South Carolina, University in Ames, Iowa, Bozeman, Montana, Reno, Nevada, Las Cruces, New Mexico, Stillwater, Oklahoma, Rapid City, South Dakota, Fairbanks, Alaska, Huntsville, Alabama, Little Rock, Arkansas, Newark, Delaware, Moscow, Idaho. Lexington, Kentucky, University of Mississippi, uh, University of Nebraska, University of Puerto Rico, University of Wyoming. And I mention this because of the incredible value that I have seen, and this is recent in my life, in, in STEM-type uh, enterprises. Uh, the biggest one of which I've mentioned a number of times in the last seven, eight years is the... Uh, FIRST Robotics Competition. FIRST Robotics is a around-the-world competition of high school groups competing in a annual robotics competition. And from my time with the team here in North Florida and Lake City, I've seen students that have gone on to things far beyond anything that they expected when they were in the middle of their high school years. I'll give you some examples. I saw some students that worked with CAD software and you think, oh, yeah, CAD software, big deal. But no, these are packages that are provided free of charge to the teams from major uh, software um, companies. It's 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 pro grade stuff that the students are getting exposure to. One of the students on our team, he was already working doing software CAD design while he was still in high school. Uh, another student went on to uh, be a member of the uh, United States Air Force, going through the Air Force Academy, and I heard that his senior project was building an R2-D2 type robot. I also heard he went on to fly high-performance Air Force fighter aircraft. Another student I know quite literally had no particular plans for anything. And he became focused on software, a coder. And we got word back a few years after he had graduated. I think he may have already, I don't know if he was in the middle of college at UCF or he had finished. I think he was still in UCF in college, but he was working for a company in the Orlando area that got in touch with our coach and said, whatever you're doing that produced students like this, we need more of them. And uh, another student that I was around for, um, I think for two years, I came along when he was in his junior year. He's at the U S Naval Academy in Annapolis. And I've kind of lost touch on where he's uh, gone since graduation but you've got some students that you don't necessarily, here you are, Lake City, Florida, small town, two high schools. That's all we got. And, it, you know, it's not just technology. It's not just um, any particular focus, but it's having opportunities for students to be exposed and to do things that are different. And I'll relate a personal example for myself and then encourage uh Sawyer and Larry to pitch in if they've got a an idea that pops up for them. When I was, I think between seventh and eighth grade, maybe between eighth and ninth grade, living in Central Florida in Winter Haven, small town, and there was a summer program for like four weeks, where I remember my mother driving myself and a, and another student to a what amounts to an old style rest area uh, over towards Lakeland. And for four weeks, I think it was one day a week, maybe, we got some exposure to different things. And of course, I don't remember all four of the subject areas that we got some exposure to, but one of them was electronics and the other was art. And I have never really had much interest in art, but from that, you know, little bit of time sitting with other students and, you know, with the teacher showing us some things, um... Made me aware that, hey, this is really pretty interesting. This is something that's, you know, I don't have any aptitude for it, but I can see where you can, you can gain that. The electronics part of it, I'll move forward, fast forward a couple of years. I was fortunate enough to go to a high school in uh, South Florida in the Fort Lauderdale area and it had an electronics uh, program as an option for students there in high school. And I still remember my instructor's name. It was Major Arthur C. Dudley, retired. He <laughs> was a retired U.S. Army uh, major, and he taught electronics. And I went through uh, uh, pretty sure it was a couple years of electronics, and that changed my life. That put me into my current ever-since career. <laughs> After a few years later of uh, working for the Federal Aviation Administration as an electronics technician, I got a question whether that would have happened without a little bit of exposure to a couple of things and being fortunate and having support of my family when I said, hey, I want to buy this electronics kit from Heathkit and I want to build a shortwave radio. And so they got me the kit and I put together a shortwave receiver that I still have to this day. So. You know, it's amazing the things that make a difference. So here's NASA announcing STEM grants, $4 million. It's pretty cool. It's going far and wide to a number of universities around the country, and uh, I I wish them all the best. Anybody else?
2: Mark, if I didn't know any better, I'd say this was something that you were feeling strongly about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, could be. and, And surprisingly, I don't have anything negative to say about it. Great. Well, I, I don't have anything negative to say either.
2: I know that, uh, I have a, I have a grandson who is, uh, just finished middle school, is starting, starting high school this year, uh, went to a STEM middle school for three years. And when he started out, he was interested in robotics. He did that for a while. And at this point right now, the latest thing that he's told me is that he wants to become a Disney Imagineer. So, uh, I, more credit to that STEM school for producing another graduate who has, uh, what looks like it's going to be a longstanding, uh, ambition to, um, end up in the, uh, a STEM career somewhere, even if it's not a Disney Imagineer.
1: And I would not be doing this show or be in this community at all if it wasn't for my time at the Challenger Centers and in particular a man named John Huberts who, even though I was over the age to become a camper, let me still come in. It was during the Mars and Astrobiology Week. It also happened to be the launch of STS-118, which included Barbara Morgan, the first educator in space. And it was – I mean, I was hooked. That was it. I followed that mission from launch to landing in every shuttle mission after that. That's when I found the community on Twitter and we started this show and all of it. So – My love of STEM comes from him and just that one simple week of camp that he thankfully let me do, even though I was a year too old. And I joke I became the camper that never left because I worked with the organization for over 12 years, running over 1,000 simulated space missions, teaching Lego robotics, 3D printing, things like that, which, again, to then see these kids get excited about it. And I just recently saw an article that was posted that one of the kids that i taught in summer camp years and years ago is now working her uh, nip worked on the uh, perseverance rover on mars wow so to see it come full circle like that it it makes ev- all of those 12 years worth it just cuz i always said if if it affects even one person and to realize that one of those campers is working on a rover that's on mars is i yeah speechless
0: that's pretty awesome so somehow I knew that uh, that you were gonna share some some thoughts about those days I'm glad you did
1: yeah I'm glad I saw that post on uh, Facebook I clicked it it was you know from the Challenger Center so I checked it out I'm like wait a minute I know that kid I remember that face because they had a picture of him when he was at one of the camps when he was younger I'm like My goodness, I was his teacher at one point. So it's, yeah, I, you should have seen the smile on my face when I was reading that article.
0: Got to feel good about that. Yeah, man.
1: Very much. I think that's the perfect way to end this episode. But before we go, I do want to acknowledge that this week is the 54th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. It's hard to believe it was 54 years since Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first stepped foot on the lunar surface while Mike Collins orbited above. Unfortunately, two of the three are no longer with us, but regardless, we still remember their historic mission, especially as we prepare to return to the moon with the Artemis program. So I'd like to thank everyone here who joined us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Radiman.
0: See you next time. Fingers crossed.
1: Oh yes. And Larry Herron, thank you for joining us as well.
0: Thank you, Sawyer.
2: Thanks, Mark. It's wonderful being here. And thanks to all of our listeners for, for tuning in and, uh, downloading and, uh, and for giving us some feedback. Uh, don't, don't hesitate to give us some feedback at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Thanks.
1: You can also tweet at Talking Space or at any of us individually as well. Uh, but until the next episode, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.
0: Ta-da!